Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today I have Dave and Jonathan of Posty coming to us from LA and San Diego. How's it going, guys? It's going great. It's great. Great. Glad to have you guys. Interesting uh, story uh, about your business. Tell us, um, what is Posty and, and where did you guys come up with this idea? Yeah, so so um, for those listening to the podcast versus watching the, the screen cap, um, this is Dave. Uh, Posty, um, the kind of the, the one sentence elevator pitch is a, a data and technology platform that makes direct mail marketing behave like a digital channel. And um, and so, you know, Jonathan and I, and really the core um, core uh, team here at Posty, uh, we come from a, a, a long uh, history of, of building direct to consumer brands as well as ad tech platforms that leverage performance marketing, quant data driven marketing. Um, Throughout kind of the, the rise of the internet here, and um, and and we, we love data. Um, we love uh, kind of the predictiveness um, that it, it allows for um, for us to grow uh, the business we've been involved in. Um, and over the last you know handful of years, as many of uh, the DC um, you know brands and founders um, listening may um, may relate to, uh, the programmatic marketplace channels had like social and search had become. Uh, much harder to find scale and efficiency as, as those marketplaces have, have developed. And so um, the story with Posty was a, a really an organic one, which is we needed ways to um, kind of move um, from solely in digital, um, from a marketing um, uh, uh, you know, focus into more omni-channel, but we expected um, you know, the same use of data and measurement and quantitative tools. They didn't really exist. Um, we, we fell in love with the direct mail channel, and, um, and we wanted to get more uh, aggressively focused there, and so we, we ended up building the, the tool set needed to run that channel like a true quant digital channel. Interesting. Um, yeah, isn't it amazing how, like, you know, I used to get just a stack of mail every day, and now I get two letters in the, in, in the mailbox, right? It's become this, like, you know, open channel, whereas it used to be very cluttered and crowded, which I assume is something you're obviously yeah. tapping into. Um, yeah. 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 And it, it's interesting because if you, if you think about how many ads you see online in a given day, um, it's, it's saturated. Right. Um, and yet, and yet people see everything that's in their mailbox. Um, and so if, if they get a quality piece from a really good brand, it's well-designed and like it feels good. The paper's good. Like all those things add to the effectiveness of, of getting a piece of mail. And so how does it work in practice? A company, are you talking, targeting larger businesses, uh, CPG brands, or, or is it small businesses across the spectrum? What's the what's target, you know, customer and how does it actually work? They sign up and create some creatives and start doing mailers or give me the kind of use case. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, the direct mail channel has proven to be effective for really the, the full scope of marketers, um, D2C, B2B, you know, small businesses, big Fortune 100 brands. Um, you know, Posty in our current state focuses on a, on a fairly bifurcated market. Um, so we, we are, are heavily focused on catering to what we call the digital native brands. So these are um, the meal kit delivery companies and the men's grooming companies and the, the 
fashion brands that have um, uh, evolved over the last probably decade or so. Um, they tend to be very quantitative in nature. They've mastered Facebook. They've mastered search. They've mastered email. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and they probably have either just started experimenting with, with direct mail um, or, or you know, have stayed away from it just because of the, the kind of analog um, antiquated nature of, of, of what the executional, uh, executional aspects of direct mail look like. Um, so, so you, you know, those are, that's one lane that we drive through. Um, on the complete kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, um, we also cater to, uh, to the biggest you know, Fortune 100 companies out there who are spending in, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars annually in direct mail. They've been running their programs um, you know, the same way for the past 20, 30 years, and they're looking for innovation as well. They've all, you know, adapted um, a much more dynamic and data-driven approach to their digital efforts, and now they're looking and saying, well, why are we running, you know, some of our biggest media channels like direct mail um, in, in such an antiquated, slow fashion? Um, and so, so they gravitate to our platform as well. Um, John, do you want to walk through how, how it actually works? Um, as yeah. Yeah, so um, kind of the, uh, one of the most valuable things that we provide is new customer prospecting. And so uh, a business will, will have a list of existing customers and um, they'll, they'll sign in a post to you, they'll upload that list and our machine learning stack will use uh, a bunch of data um, from just a multitude of sources to build a lookalike model from uh, their existing um, set of, of customers. And so then they can decide um, after that model is built, how deep into the model they want to mail. So, you know, based on budget and reach and kind of their business goals for, for, for that week or that month, um, they, they mail that lookalike audience. And so what we've done here is, is we've made something that, um, that performs at the same speed as a digital channel. So people are used to going on Facebook, building a lookalike model for their, um, you know, from their customers and, yeah. and being live same day. And so like by using a modern machine learning stack and modern data sources, we're able to take something that um, either wasn't able to be done before in direct mail or would take, you know, six or eight weeks of manual work. And, um, you know, we can do it in a matter of minutes now and then be in, in you know, in postal, um, you know, in, uh, in the post office same day or next day. So really that speed to iteration helps people um, kind of stay engaged with the channel and stay creative and, um, you know, test and optimize all the time. And is it, is it kind of like uh, analogous to like a drip, drip email campaign where you create a look like audience, create some creatives, and then, you know, I as the, the, the recipient would be getting a series of offers, postcards, something like that until I engage and drives me back to the website or how's the loop, how's the loop get closed? Um, so advertisers, uh, they can design whatever sort of, um, you know, engagement stream they want. So frequency is really important. So if you want to tell a story through multiple pieces, um, that works. Uh, some advertisers want to, you know, want to send up, you know, more people, but less frequently. And so, uh, we really give the tools to the advertiser to, to test and optimize and, and, you know, kind of zone in on what works for their business. And I think one of the questions that um, that you asked is kind of the, the specific marketing objectives. So, you know, direct mail is one of those unique channels that allows you to component and, and tackle really the entire life cycle of marketing. So we think about breaking that up into three different um, kind of distinct buckets. Sometimes it's run by the same, um, you know, team, sometimes run by multiple teams in a, in a brand. Um, and that starts with top of the funnel 
prospecting, which Jonathan focused on. So, you know, the, the holy grail for marketers is how do we just find more high-performing customers in an efficient manner, and, and direct mail historically, and, and certainly through Posty, um, has proven to be incredibly effective and scalable. You know, the other end of um, kind of the marketing life cycle would be um, driving lifetime value extension and monetizing um, and maximizing the revenue um, and engagement from your existing um, customer base, um, and and that um, and and it, you know, as a brand, you have a, a wealth of data and knowledge. Um, on how those those individuals are engaging with your brand, products, services, etc., and, um, and and direct mail is, is incredibly effective at allowing for segmentation and um, deployment, whether it's um, you know scheduled, dedicated deployments, or whether it's as as you asked about you know, uh, dynamically um, generated daily drip, what we call trigger campaigns. So um, behaviorally generated audiences, because someone took this action on your website or purchased this specific SKU or um, hasn't been seen back um, transacting with you in 60, 90 days, then send them you know, this piece or series of creatives. Um, so, so and, and there's a ton of nuances kind of in between those two. Um, the buckets, you know, third being you know, what, what we'd call um, retargeting, which is um, kind of everything in the middle. So using your first party non-transactional data in order to drive engagement, whether that's retargeting or lead conversion campaigns. Um, and, and, you know, in the digital world, there are very few channels, you know, if any, that, that allow you to cover, um, you know, the full spectrum of, of lifecycle marketing. Um, it's, it's one of the core reasons we fall in love with the channel. Yeah, no, it's so funny. I, like I said, it's kind of, it was such a thing before and I feel like it was sort of left for dead. And now it seems like companies are kind of rediscovering, you know, direct mail, which is interesting. Like I thought of you guys yesterday, we switched our, um, our, our email service and I, uh, off of HubSpot and uh, I logged into what we used to use MailChimp. Uh, we haven't used it in a couple of years. I logged in yesterday for the first time and one of the first things that pops up is a little blurb to send a postcard to any, like a physical postcard to anyone we have a physical address. Like it was kind of interesting how people are obviously paying attention to direct mail again and you know, uh, so the trend is clearly there. Um, yeah. Yeah. One, one of the really compelling uh, statistics that we've seen across campaigns and across you know, all, all our verticals is that the most responsive group of people to direct mail is actually the 20 to 30 year olds. Mm. So this, this um, I mean, I mean it, it works really well across demographics, but there's this, this kind of perception that it's, it's an older um, media channel. And so it must convert, you know, for, you know, older demographics, but not for younger. And that's not actually, actually the case. There's something about that 20 to 30 year old demographic where, you know, that physical, um, you know, holding something physical really is impactful. Interesting. Uh, well, I could spend a lot of time cause I'm just fascinated by the business, but let's, um, let's get into the fundraising discussion. How long have you guys been around? When did you start this? So business started um, officially January of 2017. So we're almost just past our, our you know uh, our year and a half birthday. Um, relatively new company, but we've accomplished a lot in a short period of time. Cool. And how much uh, have you raised? How many rounds? Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, so business was was actually was um, self funded initially. Um, and, uh, we were, uh, we, we just took our time, you know, uh, Jonathan and I, um, are, are fairly experienced entrepreneurs at this point. And, um, and, you know, we, we, we wanted to really prove, um, product market fit, 
um, convince ourselves that that um, this vision of, of turning you know the direct mail channel into um, a, a true dynamic fully automated channel is possible before going out and raising money and that's pretty different than I think the the kind of standard flow where um, entrepreneurs will try and get seed funding as early as possible to, to de-risk we, we just took that the opposite approach um, and 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 interestingly um, it took us a long time to, to finally decide that we wanted to, to um, bring in external capital. There was always this fantasy of could we be one of those trans, you know, transformative companies that never takes capital. You sure. mentioned um, you know, MailChimp, yeah. right? A company allegedly $500 million of revenue, highly profitable, never took external capital. Um, yeah. you know, that, that's pretty extraordinary. And, and so I think that would have been um, the ultimate fantasy. Um, not always possible in every um, kind of in every um, you know business model, um, and um, and so exactly a year ago, well actually uh, thirteen months ago, um, we did um, end up taking um, some capital. We raised three and a half million dollars in a seed round, um, and and we did so where the majority of the round was split between two um, uh, you know long time uh, relationship friendly um, institutional funds here in Los Angeles, and um, and then we carved out. Uh, a, a chunk of of, um, of equity for some some very strategics um, uh, who had built and and sold and scaled businesses um, that were that were similar to to Posty that we thought would add a ton of value. Now, for previous companies, had you raised venture before? It's always an interesting question because sometimes people are either you know they love the venture model, or I mean, I talked to a lot of founders who raised money before and. It, they would sell their kid before raising money again from VCs, right? It's kind of like, depends on your experience. So Yeah, yeah and we're somewhere in the middle. I mean, our, our experience raising capital has been, has generally been um, very positive. Um, it just comes with a different set of expectations and, um, and challenges. Uh, and, and raising money for raising money sake is never a good thing. Um, you, you want to have a strategic reason to, to capitalize your business. Um, every business that I think I, just about every business, I can think of one exception, um, that, that I've been involved in, in my career, which has been the better part of 16, 17 years now, um, took on capital. And in most cases, extraordinary amounts of, of venture from traditional funds. Um, and they grew, they grew quickly and some were successful and some were not successful. Um, so this is a very, a more unique, um, I think, path to, to execution and growth um, for, for us. Um, yeah. And I, I, I would say it's, it's, really, um, it's really important to focus on, on like that, that first part of the business where we were just completely, um, we were completely focused on making sure that the metrics of the business were good before we went out. Um, to raise money because like we didn't, we didn't want to raise if it was going to be a bad idea. Right. And, and we didn't want to raise if the, you know, if the, if the business metrics weren't solid. Right. And so kind of that, that initial focus I think has served us really well in this business. So you spent a year kind of proving, you know, building an MVP, proving the model, I guess you don't have to share exact specific numbers, but kind of what were your metrics you were uh, tracking and, and then putting forth into your, your narrative, um, yeah. What were yeah. you thinking? Yeah, so so I think there were kind of there, there's kind of two types of data points that we that we were very in tune with, and 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 those were really qualitative on one side and quantitative on the other. So on the quantitative side, it, it all started with margin. Um, yeah, you can always scale a business. There's always ways to to generate you know, new customers and revenue. 
Um, but if it's if you're if you're onboarding bad revenue because the margin um, is not great or it's too expensive to acquire that customer, and so your your CAC to lifetime value ratio is not there, um, then you, you can look at a path where yeah maybe you could be a revenue story, but you're never going to get to um, break even or profitability, and, and that's where ultimate terminal value comes more times than not. So so for us, it was really um, first and foremost getting all. Of the, the supply um, side, um, uh, you know, uh, attributes locked down. So understanding exactly what we needed um, in order to deliver our, our service and product marketplace, what the cost of, of, um, of, uh, of uh, generating revenue would look like. Um, and in, in our business, um, it comes from its team, kind of the general and administrative costs. So, so team, we're, uh, we're really a, a technology platform. So for engineering and data science and sales people and account managers um, and ops people, um, there's hard goods. You know, we're printing and deploying mail. We're leveraging um, both platform and, and third-party data. So there are costs associated there. Um, and, and, you know, some other, obviously, um, you know, costs that go into the servicing account. Once we had a really good understanding of the high, low, and kind of, you know, median range, margin range, um, you know, that was step one. Step two was getting very familiar with um, what are the size of the average transactions? What is a client in, in you know, the, the, the range of clients that we engage with? Um, spend a month or could they spend a month in, in direct mail um, and um, and that helps us understand what the, the potential um, you know monthly quarterly and annual margin per per um, client looks like and um, and then the third piece was does direct mail um, work is it you know if you know our whole you know, philosophy is going to make it very um, transparent on um, on what your your you know your your ROI your ROAS your your CPAs look like and so we need to prove to ourselves that um, that now with the cost basis and our methodology on deployment targeting optimization could actually drive ROI for our clients. So th those were those were the things that um, that on the quantitative side that that um, that to us were just so obvious um, and also made I think fundraising very easy um, that we proved those on and that we understood those business principles. And then on the qualitative side, it was just simply. You know, how do people respond to having a technology solution for this channel? How engaged are you know quant marketers um, in you know and how and how much um, capacity, mind share, um, risk tolerance do they have to test um, you know a new channel in this channel in particular? And um, and so all those things um, became abundantly clear over that first you know you know several months, um, and we knew we had a good business. Um, it was we hadn't figured everything out yet, but but we knew that we felt in control of. And I think that was really the moment that we looked up and said, um, it all tends to work, you know, you know, the data looks generally good, we need to get it better, but, um, but taking on some, um, some strategic capital, de-risking and being able to accelerate our growth really through hiring more than anything um, made a lot of sense. It, no, it's impressive to do all that in a year. I mean, a lot of companies spend years and don't have that data. I, how many pilots do you have to run to kind of have like statistically, you know, relevant and accurate data like that or metrics like that? I mean, because that's that's not easy. That's non-trivial. Oh man, it's, I wish I wish I knew you asked that question. We would have brought some of our PhDs um, on the on the call um, for the complex math, but. Um, you know, look for for us. It's it was you know in the early stages directional. 
um, you know, we could have we could have gone a, lo- a lot longer before raising capital, and um, and and I don't think that we I don't think that 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 running another 20, 30, 40 campaign would have um, returned any um, any different data. So for us, I mean, give you in without having the, the the dashboard up in front of me, and we had probably sent a couple hundred, I think, thousand maybe, like a thousand maybe, a thousand campaigns. Yeah, yeah and obviously, I mean, millions of pieces of mail, um, yeah. you know, across okay. a good dozen um, verticals, mm-hmm. and um, wow. and so so it, I mean, it was a real business. I mean, we we were doing real revenue, it was growing substantially month over month. Um, you know, really right from, you know, the get-go. And, and so, um, you know, we, we felt very confident. And, um, again, not that we had solved every problem, not that we had every feature that we wanted live, um, but, but that, that we had a, a statistically significant amount of data to suggest that A, the channel works, and B, we have a good grasp on the cost side of our business. Very interesting. No, that's, that's amazing. Um, cool. So talk about actually – the fundraising process if uh and we can always cut this out if, if you but i believe it's public knowledge crosscut and bonfire ventures are the two um two firms that led the deal that's correct yeah that's okay. correct um and uh both great great partners um you know look our, our fundraise was slightly different right so jonathan and i have been, been involved in, in growing businesses here in the la ecosystem for um for the you know, better part of a decade and a half or so, um, uh, both Bonfire and um, and Crosscut were um, in, you know had uh, individuals and partners that that, um, that that we had relationships going back 14, 15 years with, um, who had invested in other companies that we had worked for or or um, or built, um, and, and it was a very and, and they were with us from the start. They were the two firms that. Um, originally came to us when they heard that we were working on something. The truth of the matter is to them, um, at least for the early conversations, it almost didn't matter what we were working on. Um, they wanted, you know, they made it very clear they wanted to be supportive, involved, um, and, um, and, and, and honestly, in both cases, um, you know, they didn't show up with term sheets, but, um, but they, they more or less made offers on the spot. And we, I think they appreciate the fact that we said, look, we're, we're not there yet. We're still trying to figure out um, the nuances of our business. And it, it really was a kind of a six month, you know, drawn out series of just authentic conversations. Um, and, um, and at one point we turned into, into more of a formal process. We were heading up into your neighborhood and, and sitting down with the um, new firms. Um, you know, we had kind of attention. Um, it was very flattering. And then eventually um, when we decided where we were as a business um, and, and the type of uh, partners and capital that made sense for us that day, um, we just we decided to stay local, and um, and and it's been great that we, we have you know friends who are rooting for us every day. Um, they're you know they're there for us um, you know when when we have questions and we're tackling problems that maybe we hadn't seen before. Um, and so for us, it was it, it definitely has proven to be the right decision. Yeah, I was going to kind of ask that. You've pretty much already answered my question, but you know when you have these VC firms that are kind of um, already friendly to you and want to, you know, see what you're doing next, like the temptation must be kind of strong to go, maybe go take that interest, shop it around, see if you can, you know, leverage that into a Andreessen Kleiner Sequoia type of deal, or do you kind of just stick with, 
the familiar tried and true uh, and build on that loyalty. I don't know if that. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And, and we, we did that out of fairness to us. We didn't run a, a formal process where we went out and, and shop 40 firms, but we sat down with, you know, 10 um, or so. They, they all were firms we had pre-existing relationships with. Um, many of those that you named um, in your last sentence it were included. Um, we had um, we had lots of offers, um, and and one of the things that we want to do is to, is to out of fairness to us and um, and and investors in general, um, you know, kind of set, understand where the market was setting both valuation terms, um, and that was important to us to to make sure that we were um, you only get to do a seed round once, and you don't get to go and reset it, and so terms matter. Um, probably more so, um, pro- probably more so than, than than valuation, but both mattered um, to us. And so we 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 had to go and have some conversations um, to put it in perspective. I mean, there was a, um, a, a a an offer on the table with two absolute top marquee firms that were going to split a seed round. Um, it was going to be a, a larger amount of capital, um, and. And it, it was it was sexy. I mean, it, it was the type of things that entrepreneurs dream of. And sure. Jonathan and I struggled for for a while, and we finally looked at each other and said, "This is crazy. Like, why are we bringing these two firms in for a seed seed round when we're going to need them um, at a later date um, when we get to the growth rounds?" And um, and it's just a, it's a lot of unnecessary pressure. Um, and we just wanted to be able to kind of take our time and build a great product and and and, a, and the foundation of the business rather than focus on just absolute rocket ship like growth um, when we interestingly when we came back and we, we um, you, know, uh, you know turned down some of these other offers um, I think in particular because even at the, the note the marquee firms that they, they were um, their friendlies they all kind of smiled and said you did the right thing that it, it was the they right said thing. what we you did the right thing they, they said you did the right thing they uh-huh. said it was like, you know it, we were just we're, we're, we're cannons and you didn't need us right now come back to us you're, you're a we're cannons. That's that's interesting. I've never heard that make sense though. Um, let's talk about that for a minute though. Kind of riff off that just a bit because it seems like you know again my my Mailchimp experience yesterday logging in seeing them promote the the postcard or um, I guess there's some other players like Pebble Post that have raised a bunch of money. Do you do you feel that it seems like the space? My point is it feels like the space is kind of heating up, getting you know some attention, getting some players involved. Does that compel you to want to raise a lot quickly and and fire those cannons? Like, how do you think about that? Um, so I, I'll give you my perspective. Jonathan may have a slightly different perspective, which um, I think is always good. Um, I mean, they, not really. Like, I, like I'd be lying if I said there weren't moments of like, oh God, should we be moving faster? Um, are, are we being too precious? Um, th- that's just natural. Right, and, and I think like all good entrepreneurs, we're you know we're we have our, our moments when we think we're the greatest thing in the world and nobody can touch us, and then we have moments where we think we're complete failures and we'll never accomplish anything in our careers. I mean, that's just you know that's just um, maybe even more extreme with us than most, but but I think that's pretty natural. Um, so sure, there are moments when we look and we're, and, and we just know what we can do with a ton of capital, but at the end of the day. Um, we're building a, we're building a product that is quantitative in nature 
Um, we work very hard servicing our clients transparently and putting in a ton of effort to making things easy, helping them accomplish the pain points that we as marketers had, which is what led us to build this product. And, um, and, and they realized at the end of the day with, with, with quant performance marketing, um, you know, and, and really, you know, that SaaS you know, platform like Posty to, that supports it, either you deliver results or you don't. It doesn't matter how much venture dollars you raise. If if a if a brand jumps on the platform and the tools aren't easy to use and they're not you know they're not getting results and they're not accomplishing their marketing objectives, it, it's irrelevant. And so you know we look at it and say, sure, we raise a bunch of money to go you know go toe to you know toe to toe with the sales organization. We we ramp from you know ten to a hundred salespeople in six months and. It, it's just not it, where we're at right now. It's just not awesome. It's not, and I don't think it's necessary. So, you know, there are businesses where it, it you just can't like you don't have a choice. And, and an example is, and, and we look at it for for parallels and analogs and, and all sorts of completely disparate and similar and competitive businesses. You know, you look down the street here. You know, kind of one of the big transformative LA companies is Bird, the scooter yeah. company, right? Like. They, they're, they're, you know, they, they're, they're competing with Lime. They're competing now with Uber. They're competing with Lyft. Like, they, like they need to raise ungodly amounts of money, and they have no alternative. There is, they don't get to say we're going to build the best app and the best geolocation and proximity data, and um, we're going to make sure that our, you know, our, you know, scooters have better gripping foot pads, and that's going to get rid of that. They just don't have a choice. It's, it's an all-out war. Um, you know, we're not, you know, we're just not in that type of space. And that's, that's, I think, a luxury for us. Um, and, and I would actually go back to your example of, of MailChimp, um, you know, just incredible product all around, um, you know, but they're something like 16 years into that journey, right? And so, like, capital does a lot of things, but it doesn't automatically make you an amazing product, right? And so, like, we're really focused on the product, like Dave's saying. And, um, you know, if we had 10 times the capital, would we have 10 times better product? Like, no. Like, we're still in that, in that stage where we're just, you know, we're building amazing product. And I, I don't think um, a, a huge raise at this point would, would have helped that. That makes sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, right? You can't just add 10 more engineers and make a 10x better product. No, I mean, you add 10 engineers and, and your product quality likely goes down, right? Yeah. Unless they're exactly the right people. Um, and, and so far, like, our, our engineering team is amazing. And, um, you know, but, but we're, we're very capital efficient and, and, you know, very focused on that. Well, it's and this is a kind of a broader topic, but, like, you know, constraints often – make you focus right makes you focus on on what is the two or three killer features that your customers need versus 20 features that you pack into the right constraints kind of create creativity and also focus and you're not in maybe a winner take all market like lime versus bird so you know maybe you have a little more freedom so that's that's interesting stuff to balance right these are the fun trade-offs and things you know entrepreneurs have to sort out <laughs> and Jonathan and I have these debates daily yeah, you know, yeah. Um, we might change our mind tomorrow yeah <laughs> we'll see a 50 or million dollar <laughs> day around. yeah um, but, but look like let's be honest like like to be able to to you know figure out what trade-off is the right one to make like you know that's it's I mean we're, we're lucky to be you know to be in this industry and to be able to do that so yeah, no, good, good uh, problems to have, whether you take the, 
top tier, you know, term sheet from uh, from Silicon Valley VCs or stay local. I mean, these are great problems to to have. Um, let's see. So I want to touch about something or touch on something that you mentioned before we uh, started recording, just on controlling the narrative. Like as you're, you know, building this out, I'm sure you'll be raising money again soon. How do you sort of think about controlling the narrative when you're talking to investors? Uh, it's a great question. And it's critical. Um, you know, the, it, as entrepreneurs, I mean, the, the biggest advice I, I would um, give them is that never lose sight over the fact that this is your company. You, you had a vision. Um, ho hopefully your vision came from a, a problem and your belief that, that you had um, the capabilities of, of developing a, an elegant solution for it. Um, and um, and and first of all, Jonathan's great at reminding me that anytime I'm having kind of a, a freak out moment, usually I, I just I think I, I wear I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. I engage with all of our clients when there's a single campaign that isn't executed with perfection or didn't deliver the ultimate you know results we anticipated, um, and and someone you know maybe less than you know than than over the moon, um, which you know, very rarely happens. But um, but but when that when that does, Jonathan always reminds me. He's like, Look, we're getting up every day, and we're we're you know we're working fourteen-hour days to try and um, you know try and solve pain points that real marketers have, and that doesn't mean perfection. It's quant, um, you know test and optimization marketing here, um, which means that not every campaign is going to be um, perfect. Um, and and I think that same narrative carries forward when you're sitting down across the table from people that are grilling you on your business and trying to poke hold. I mean, their entire job is to try and find every reason they shouldn't invest, and it's really easy to walk away feeling dejected or, oh, I'm going about another potential thing that could, you know, fail in, in my business. Well, there are a million things. I say it all, you know, I say it all the time. It's like, like, look, everybody gives us tons of compliments about how, how, you know, how much we've accomplished in this short year and a half period. And I always remind them, like, look, we can screw it all up really quickly. And it's ours to make sure that we don't. Um, but sitting across the table from, from a you know, group of, of super intellectual, smart people that are, again, their sole mission is to, Try and figure out every reason they shouldn't invest, so that at the end of the day, when they finally make an investment, they feel like they've you know done everything they can to de-risk um, their perspective. Um, you know, you really have to come in um, knowledgeable about your business, understanding the data um, with absolute clear transparency and, and knowledge over why you're raising in the first place. You're hopefully raising not to survive, but you're raising because you found something that works, and you and you know um, how to accelerate that business with additional capitalization. Um, and that comes from kind of the, the, the kind of the questions that you had asked earlier in, in this conversation, which are what KPIs are you using to determine whether your business is on the right track or not? Um, understanding that the, the actual margin structure of your business is absolutely critical, and many early stage first time entrepreneurs lose sight of that and they focus on revenue. Um, certainly, understanding and having some control over. Um, the growth of your business, understanding, you know, some tactics that are driving new customer engagement um, and, and understanding the cost of that, you know, and, and then being, being realistic over, you know, with yourself on um, does that the same efficiencies you're seeing hold with scale? And if, if yes, great. And if not, um, what do you have to do to try and drive efficiency as you scale? Um, you know, as you understand those, those things, um, you know, it doesn't matter how smart or experienced the person sitting across the table grilling you is, um, you, you, you know, you know your business better than them. And you just have to, you know, it's always good to be um, mindful and listen. And, and some of those pitches are great because you hear, 
you're sitting in a room with people that have, have you know, lived that lived the the war with with many successful and, and unsuccessful businesses, and and um, and and probably have some insights that you don't have. But but again, you know your business better than anyone else. If you understand the data um, on the cost side and the growth side of your business, um, you understand your product vision, and and um, and uh, and you can speak very clearly to it. Then you then then you a hundred percent of the confidence to control that narrative um, as you're presenting and not get. Um, you know, kind of taken off track um, by by the fear that the the fundraising process can potentially impose. Good, Jonathan. Anything to add on that? Um, just one thing on uh, investors, like they've seen a lot, and so just just this morning we were actually remembering some advice that an investor gave us that turns out to be spot on, um, and and. And you know, it's it's not someone that invested in the company, but they gave us some feedback, and it turned out to be right and uh, you know, really really good. And so there's something about the fundraising process that, like, it can actually be this great learning experience where you're you're sitting down with people that have seen so many data points, they've seen so many stories play out um, that you know, there's a lot of learning that can take place there besides just like this, um, you know, raising of capital. Yeah, do you, I, I was, was going to ask that question. Do you guys actually kind of have a set of questions that you guys usually will be asking the, the investors during these meetings? You're trying to kind of extract, you know, learnings from their, their brains, or is it more just informal? Um, that's a, it's a really good question. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, these are human beings that you're engaging with and, um, and you're having a dialogue. And so those conversations, um, can again, you want to keep, you know, we talked about controlling the, the, the flow of information, but you also want to be open to, um, to kind of going down certain, you know, rabbit holes that make sense based on the, the knowledge of the person on the other end of the table. Um, as, actually, as I'm saying this, I mean, the, the, the probably the biggest piece of advice, um, that I think we can give people going into funding processes that again, these are human beings. Um, these aren't logos, right? And so, you know, everybody gets excited. We're going to meet with Andreessen. We're going to meet with Excel. That, that's not the case. You're going to meet with one or a series of individuals at those firms that each have distinct, um, you know, disparate um, insights, information, background, knowledge, experience, et cetera. And so if you do your homework going into those meetings and you understand the, the operational roles that they've been involved in, the investments that they've made, um, those that they're spending most time on, you due diligence them with um, investors or with uh, entrepreneurs who maybe they're sitting on, on boards with, um, then I think you can go in very prepared um, both on, on, on your own pitch, but, but more importantly to the stuff that, that John was talking about, which is you, you can extract value from, even if you're given an hour with these, these, you know, these you know, incredibly insightful people um, and, gain, and gain feedback. Um, and sometimes it's major, and sometimes it's 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 minor, and, and they're macro and and, and um, uh, you know in nature or micro. And, and, and the, the 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 example that Jonathan's referencing was simply about um, us doing a very casual reference on uh, on a, an exec that we were bringing on board um, or thinking about bringing on board about a year ago, and and um, getting some really insightful um, commentary on all the positives of this person, but also. You know, there was one very specific um, kind of, you know, this is maybe their weakness, um, where you need to help develop them. And that was, I mean, that's, that's, that's proved, as John said, that's proven to be incredibly insightful, you know, and, and, and has, um, you know, where you may have started doubting or questioning this individual, 
it became very clear that, hey, no, this is a really key, awesome executive. We just need to help this person. Um, and you know, with you know, with this this one area of skill that he that, that he or she has not been able to um, you know develop yet. So um, so yeah, I, I guess that's a long long way of saying that that do your work, be prepared, understand um, the expertise of the person that you're getting the luxury of spending some time with, um, but then be open to where they take the conversation as well. One one interesting thing that that we found also is like we're we're going into investors. Um, pitching this this new channel for growth, right? Or this this remake of an old channel, um, and so the number of referrals that that we've gotten from investors that that aren't even you know um, in 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 the company are like it's, it's a pretty good number because like they all have portfolio companies that need help with growth, right? And so uh, you know just that process alone, um, or that part of the process has been beneficial. Yeah, I had that with another of these interviews, a, a company called Botkeeper, which is doing like an accounting, AI-driven accounting, and they were getting a ton of customer referrals from the fundraising process, and they're kind of like, maybe we should continue our fundraising, you know, <laughs> yeah. like a sales channel. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Actually, I had a question uh, drilling into something you mentioned um, <clears throat> about kind of diliging this investor, diligencing the investor you're going to be meeting with by you know, talking to other founders they've invested in. Do you ever do that before the meeting? Do you ever talk to other founders kind of prior to, to meeting with the investor or is it usually after a meeting or two? No, as, as often as possible. I mean, I, it would be hard to, to say 100% of the time, but, um, but you know, we're at the very least, we're doing, we're doing um, kind of the, the written research due diligence and then as often as possible, um, we're trying to connect with individuals who who who, um, who know these people. And sometimes it's another investor that's co-invested, and sometimes it's um, it was the boss of this investor at a at a company that they worked for when they were operators. And sometimes it's a portfolio company. It's critical. Um, you don't get a you don't get a redo really. Yeah. Uh, you, once you have a board, and there are there are you know elected members of that board, and once you have um, you're sharing the cap table and that your equity with um, other you know other individuals you don't get to say oh we're not such a good fit for each other um, we're just going to buy back your shares yeah <laughs> it doesn't work that way um, yeah. at least not often um, and so you know it's it's a it's a long term relationship and um, and um, you know the other thing to note is that there's you know the the terminal value of a company is is something that you know most you know entrepreneurs and investors share in common um, but not always. And certainly not every step, you know, between the day that that, that check clears and that day that you reach terminal value. Um, and so, um, so the minute that you have someone that has um, a say um, in your business, um, you know, the, it means that the trajectory of your business could be changed forever. And, and you, you know, you darn well better do um, your due diligence to make sure that it's not just about the money, but it's about people that share that value that are going to add. Um, vision and, and value are going to be supportive, are going to um, kind of let you make some of your own mistakes um, and provide guidance um, when it's critical. Um, and, and not all investors are, are good at all those things. Yeah. Um, okay, one or two more questions. I'll let you guys get back to building Posty. Um, kind of a, a tangential question I've never asked before, but do you guys tag team your pitches? Uh, there's obviously two of you on the podcast. Usually these are just the CEO. Do you guys go in and, and how do you break up a pitch between the two of you if you do that? 
How did we do that? Um, so I, most of the pitches, I think I would, I would run demos um, and, and Dave would do a lot of the like high level. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think you want to tag team too much though. I mean, it's important to kind of see both of the founders, um, but you know, it doesn't need to be like a circus or anything. Yeah, I mean, look, Jonathan and I, I mean, we, we have the luxury of having worked together for 50 years in pretty intense entrepreneurial projects. So um, we knew what we were getting ourselves into when we decided to partner up on, on, this, um, on this business. Um, that's super helpful. I think it would be very different if, um, if we were kind of a, a match made you know, between a business mind and a, and a technologist and we're just you know, trying to build something and, and had known each other for three months before we went out and, and raised. Um, <laughs> we tend to um, complement each other very, very, um, very well and we split. Um, I think um, division of responsibilities very clearly. Um, you know, Jonathan is is you know, is the CTO. I'm the CEO. So the the business units um, roll up under me. The um, data science and um, and engineering um, orgs roll up under him. We share product and have a, I think a very clear collaborative vision on um, on product where where you know our product you know really comes from a um, you know, re providing a solution. It's not, yeah. just, it's not some just crazy idea we had. It's, it's we, we recognize the problem and we're trying to use technology and data to solve that problem. So I think in, in our pitches, you know, we certainly did, did some practicing um, and there are just, I, I doesn't, there's not a whole lot of dead airtime when questions come in, looking at each other, wondering who's going to take them. It just, uh, you know, we know, we know where that line is. And, um, and it works well. So for founders that don't have that same chemistry, um, it probably does require um, a bunch of preparation, mock pitches, um, very detailed outline, understanding um, you know whose whose expertise um, you know fall, or, or what you know what categories each uh, founder's expertise falls within. And in some cases, it probably is easier if it just um, one of the founders is the one leading the. The, the conversation in a pitch. Um, yeah, it wasn't really the case with Jonathan and I. Um, I, I think I probably took most of the lead, but um, but it was it was it was very collaborative. Did we ever answer questions in perfect unison? That would be a good trick. <laughs> um, it wasn't perfect unison. We harmonized. Oh, harmonized. Okay, that's good. Um, that's yeah. good. Good. Good stuff. All right. Um, Last two questions. Any tips just for founders in Southern California, kind of navigating the LA slash San Diego uh, startup or fundraising ecosystems? Where would you point them to to get going? Anything there? Yeah, so I can't really speak to San Diego. Jonathan can speak a little bit. Um, I think more broadly there um, in LA. Um, look, we're, we're we've we've hit our adolescence in the startup cycle. Um, so I think the number one thing that you see is that there are there are more um, there's more people that have batted through the cycles. Um, you know, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, because they started you know 30 years earlier than anyone else developing technology um, and startups, and so you have lots of individuals who are three, four, five generation old, right? I mean, you, you see the the PayPal mafia as they call them, um, and um, and they're all on their second, third, fourth, fifth, sometimes doing apparently a little, like. 11 startups at once yeah. um, and there's the amount of knowledge is, um, is, is tremendous. You don't get that by reading a book. Um, it helps and blogs help, but, but you get that from living through it. And in LA, 
you know, there was a time when, you know, it was, everything was MySpace, talking about just MySpace, and it was this one kind of transformative um, company. Um, we're at, um, we're at a, a different place right now. You know, there are, there are now multi-billion dollar, you know, uh, meteoric-rise um, consumer internet companies that, that are popping up regularly, you know, Bird and Snapchat, two, you know, two um, examples of that. And so what that means is you have um, a wealth of knowledge on things like fundraising, um, people that have gone through it and raised hundreds and billions of dollars in funding. You have product people that have lived through, um, you know, the woes over a couple decades now of, of building and pivoting and optimizing. You have, you have the quants who understand data and all the signal to indicate that it's worth continuing to invest in this um, or not worth not um, worthwhile. Um, and there's just more money, too. So you don't have to leave L.A., um, you know, it used to be that you could raise a half a million, million dollar seed round um, in LA and then you were forced to go up north. Um, you know, it's still a good idea because there, there's very smart, um, you know, investors up there. But, um, but, but, you, but, but you have a lot more, you know, surrounding opportunities here. Um, so what I, I, you know, if I was you know, just moving to LA or graduating college and wanting to get involved in a startup, um, it's a great town right for networking. And there's no shortage of, um, of networking events and there, there are no shortage of people you can LinkedIn stock and, and take for coffee dates. And, um, and, 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 um, and, and we're, we're just in a time where there's a lot of activity and people are excited to talk about it. Um, so so that, that's a really, I used to think it's a really interesting time for, um, you know, LA and not just LA, New York and Chicago as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anybody's kidding ourselves and saying we're, you know, we have the, you know, the same wealth of knowledge as San Francisco. It's, it just would be impossible to catch it right now. Um, but, um, but there are lots of entrepreneurs, engineers, product investors who have, um, lots of whims and, and, and kind of bumps and bruises from their experiences. So get, get, just get involved network. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with you. I think LA is definitely on the ascendancy. And I, I mean, just from our perspective, we sell software for startups raising money. And I see a ton of action down in, in LA, both from our customers, but also just different incubators, accelerators, like there's a lot going on in, in Southern California. I'm kind of blown away. It's like Austin and LA are almost like kind of, I would almost say, you know, battling for, I don't know, whatever, number two or number three or I don't know where you put New York on the thing, but it's like definitely uh, a lot of, a lot of cool stuff happening there. Um, yeah. It probably depends on the vertical. Each city tends to have certain characteristics that they're better at. Yeah. All right. Last question. Um, any, any uh, advice you would give your younger self if you were doing this all over again or any other advice we haven't touched on that you want to want to get out? <laughs> You want to go first, Jonathan? Yes, I would love to go first. Um, <laughs> um, so I, probably the biggest piece of advice is uh, in that initial period uh, of, of bootstrapping the company, of, of self-funding, um, would, would just be a, to kind of zoom out and see the bigger picture. Um, and so, in, you know, it, it would be hard to actually do this, but, you know, don't, don't stress about things in, the, in that initial period, but um, just kind of enjoy the, the freedom that you have to explore, um, you know, this, this new business opportunity and, and, and focus on the fundamentals. Mm. Um, so, it, it, you know, in, in many ways, I think we really did that, that, that period um, 
really well. Uh, but you know, it's it's a it's a stressful time, um, and so yeah, to just you know tell tell ourselves to um, kind of enjoy the freedom that that that, that kind of fluid period of the business lets us lets us have. That's good. Yeah. Tell yourselves to chill out a little more, right? <laughs> yeah, still be impatient and like wanna, you know, wanna build amazing things, but but to you know, to kind of recognize where that period fits and kind of the history or the you know the story of the company. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think for me, um, you know, probably the probably you know, well, there's a million things that I would tell myself to do differently. Um, part of being self-critical, but that's kind of, I think, um, I think that's, that's really, um, you know, what I, what I would change, which is just kind of maybe whisper in my ear that, you know, don't be, don't be so afraid of failure, move fast, um, you know, get yourself out there. I, I think in my early days, I was um, even more self-critical than I am now, um, felt like I needed to know all the answers before making decisions. Um, and I think to be quite honest, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to make um, you know, definitive decisions with imperfect information. Um, you know, look, if you're building something from scratch and trying to be disruptive, it's because nobody's done it the way you've done it before. So how can you possibly have all the answers? Yeah. Uh, and, and that I think leads to more success and, and you just have to, um, you, you just have to be okay with, with the failure in order to, to accomplish the successes you're, you're going after. Uh, that's good stuff. I mean, I think kind of a, a corollary to that is like, making decisions without perfect information rarely are decisions ever permanent, right? You can fix things, you can pivot, change, and, um, and failure is just part of the, the whole process with entrepreneurs. I like that. Um, okay. If people want to learn more, is it uh, just posty.com or do you have an unusual um, domain? No, you got it. P-O-S-T-I-E.com. Anything you want to plug, anything you're hiring for, any specials or deals you've got running, anything uh, you want to plug? Uh, so certainly, I mean, look, look we, we're, we're very selective in the talent that we onboard. We care a lot about culture and, and strength of capabilities. We're always looking for um, uh, strong um, difference makers in on our engineering team and um, our data science team. Um, certainly on the business side, um, we're looking for, um, for, um, strong motivated salespeople, um, and quant marketers. So one of the kind of differentiators, I think about how we build our, our CS team is we're not hiring a bunch of CS people. We hire, um, quant marketers, people who have, um, been optimizing, um, paid media campaigns for a long time. Um, so, so if you're looking to, um, to jump onto the software side from maybe, um, running marketing in a, in a consumer brand, we want to talk to you. And then as far as, um, as far as, um, as, you know, plugging business, um, you know, if you're a direct to consumer brand who feels like you're fairly saturated in your current channels, um, thinks quantitatively and has either been frightened by um, uh, kind of the the antiquated nature of of, of direct mail, or or has heard maybe there's there's something there and it, it and it works. Um, I can tell you with 100% certainty, we have direct access to the data in every single campaign. Um, it's a great, highly effective, big scalable channel that performs um, on par by all metrics um, to any of your best um, digital programmatic channels. Um, come talk to us. We'll, 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 you know, we have lots of case studies and knowledge to share and, um, and, and we have software and 
and uh, a technology platform to make it easy and possible for you um, to tackle this channel um, you know, fearlessly. What's a minimum, um, minimum spend or budget that you, know, you should have in mind before going? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so we like to you know, say, loosely say that it's, it's, a, it's a, a campaign-based platform. Um, you, you know, there is no minimum. The reality is that it's all about um, mathematics and, and statistical significance. So, you know, what we care about is, is two things. One, that your test cells are big enough um, based on your expected response rate to deliver um, statistically significant results. So when you're making decisions on future optimization, they're actually predictive. Um, the other is that your budgets are big enough to test um, so that you're not, um, you're not trying to throw bullseyes out of the gate. Um, that's just not how any media channel works. Um, you know, our clients come on board and, and it's a crazy range. I mean, we have clients that come on board and spend 10K a month for a while and just getting their feet wet. They're learning much slower. And we have clients that come on board and spend a quarter million dollars out of the gate, no problem. And, um, and the difference is that they're just learning faster. Um, more creative tests, more audience segments, more lookalike models, more uh, marketing tactics. Um, so um, don't let budget scare you off, um, but um, but but come prepared to invest in the channel. Um, you know, uh, it, it's silly to kind of just dip your toes in. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll be calling on you at some point. Hopefully, it'll be fun to to run a campaign. So gentlemen, thank you. This is wonderful, excellent stuff. And uh, we'll catch you after your next round. How about that? All right. Perfect. Thanks, Nathan. Okay. Nice Cheers, guys. Thank you. Bye.